0: Diane, we're both introverts. What the heck are we doing on a podcast together?
1: You made me do this.
0: Fair point. Welcome to Common Sense on the Prairie, a podcast by First National Wealth Management in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We are a regional best provider of wealth management services, including investment management and financial planning, as well as personal trust, institutional trust, and retirement plan services. This podcast is our chance to share some of our passions and help you make your money work for you. On today's episode, I'm joined by a special guest, my wife, Diane. Diane, you've somewhat reluctantly agreed to join me to discuss a meaty topic, money and marriage. Thanks so much for being a good sport and hanging out with me today. Of course. Before we get into our discussion, let's get that disclaimer out of the way. Any comments, Insights or strategies discussed on this podcast are intended to be general in nature and therefore may not be suitable for you in your situation, whatever that may be. Before acting on anything we discuss, please consult with your attorney, CPA, and or your financial advisor. All right, Diane, why do you think we're talking about money and marriage?
1: I'm guessing it's because married people fight about money a lot.
0: That they do. Let's start with a little trivia. Diane, as a percentage, how many marriages in the U.S. end in divorce?
1: Oh, I think I've heard this stat before. Is it 50%?
0: Nailed it. About half the marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. Next question. How much does the feeling that one spouse spends money foolishly increase the odds of divorce?
1: Oh, gosh. I have no idea. 40%?
0: Close. According to the National Marriage Project, feeling that one spouse spent money foolishly increases the likelihood of divorce by 45% for both men and women. Last question. For those couples that argue about finances at least once a week, how much more likely are they to get divorced?
1: Total guess. I'm going to say 60%. This
0: one surprised me a bit. The answer is only 30%. I would have guessed that percentage would have been much higher. If you and I argued about money at least once a week, I'm not sure either of us would be too excited to stick this thing out.
1: No kidding. What's with all the fighting?
0: Well, I think that when people get married, they learn that their spouse views finances differently than they do. And that's likely due to how each of them was raised. When spouses have different views of finances and don't come to a mutual understanding, the relationship can become strained and can, unfortunately, end up in divorce. Our backgrounds and our upbringings shape how we view money, and we carry that into our marriages. Diane, you and I were no different, and that's why we thought it might be helpful to share our story in this podcast. Hopefully by doing so, we can inspire others to take steps in their own marriages to make sure personal finance issues don't derail the relationship. All right, Diane, you get to start.
1: That hardly seems fair.
0: Yeah, it probably isn't. Either way... Tell us a little about your background with
1: money. Sounds good. So growing up, I don't know that we really talked a lot about money in my family. Like I never knew how much money my parents made or had saved. It was just generally kind of understood that we had to work hard and we had to save. To put it into context, we had four kids in my family. My dad worked in the steel mill and my mom worked as a bank teller. Sometimes she worked part-time, sometimes full-time. They both worked very hard to support us, and we were always taught to live kind of frugally and save money, and I think that they taught this mostly through their example. All in all, I would say that we lived pretty modestly, well, except at Christmas. (laughs) My parents went a little crazy at Christmas. Well, actually, they still do.
0: Yeah, they do, especially your dad. Your dad at Christmas is him living his best life.
1: Yeah, I know it. The rest of the time, we didn't necessarily want for anything, but we also didn't have a lot of extras. As far as I know, my parents were great savers. They were able to raise four kids and put them all through college. To this day, I can still remember maybe when I was a teenager or so, and they paid off their mortgage. Hmm. And that was pretty incredible to witness, and it taught me the power of saving. So even though we didn't talk a lot about money, I learned so much from just watching them. So cool. Oh, and I need to mention my grandma, because I learned a, quite a bit from her when it comes to money.
0: Was that your mom's mom?
1: Yep, it was. She was very frugal, and she reused everything. She used to tell us stories about how she came to the U.S. without much when she was a teenager. She later married my grandpa, who was a farmer. When you're young and hearing stories about what it's like to not have much, it kind of leaves an impression. Oh, and I also remember she had this old giant whiskey jug that was full of change hidden away in one of her cabinets. She would always stress putting away money for a rainy day.
0: A rainy day. You don't hear that expression much anymore.
1: No, you don't. But I'll never forget it.
0: That's awesome. So my story is a bit different. As I think back now, I can easily point to the exact moment in my childhood when I became utterly confused about money. For probably the first 12 or so years of my life, I really didn't think much about money. I felt like we were in a good spot, but we didn't have some extravagant lifestyle. We lived in a middle-class neighborhood and did middle-class things. Like Diane, if I wanted something extra, I had to go earn the money for it. All the stories I heard growing up were about how poor my parents were starting out. They lived in this dumpy old trailer house with no insulation in the middle of the South Dakota Prairie. When it got really cold, they would have to open the oven and put a little fan on the oven door to heat it.
1: Oh my gosh, are you serious? Yeah.
0: And then when my brother was born, they didn't have enough money for two cribs. So my dad took my sister's crib, sawed it in half, and then screwed each half to a wall. Bam, two cribs. (laughs) But by the time I came around, my parents had done well enough to retire at an early age. And as a result, I spent almost no time on the farm. I never experienced those hard times, I only heard the stories. And then one day, I remember talking to my dad about this family we knew, who I thought had a ton of money because they drove really nice cars, they lived in an awesome house, and they took these amazing vacations. I wasn't complaining, but I was definitely a touch envious. Then my dad stopped and was like, who, that family? Your mom and I have a lot more money than they do. I was totally floored when he said that. I thought, if we have money, why don't we live like it? Because that's what I thought it meant to have money. It had to be obvious to everyone else. But that wasn't the way we lived, hence the confusion. So, after that, my dad and I started talking a lot more about money. He would tell me stories about how he and my mom built their farm by living on less than they made, investing everything they could back into the farm, and the importance of deferred gratification. And he would tell me stories about how the smartest people he ever knew worked hard enough and invested so that their money eventually worked for them. And while your grandma used a whiskey jar, my dad said he always kept an extra grain bin full of wheat for a rainy day. So while our backgrounds weren't exactly the same, there are definitely a lot of similarities in how we were brought up. What happened when you and I got together?
1: Well, we got married after I had been out of school and working for a few years. You were still in law school. When we got married, we combined all of our accounts and started planning for the future. I didn't have any debt and was living pretty lean. In fact, my credit card limit at the time was only $500.
0: I, on the other hand, was accumulating massive amounts of student loan debt. By the time I was finished with graduate school, I had accumulated more than $200,000 in student loan debt. Knowing my eventual career path, I was fairly comfortable with the risk and committed to making that investment pay off. How did you feel about it?
1: I trusted that it would work out, but it was scary. We were broke, and I knew I had to keep working to support you in this investment. It didn't give me a second thought about marrying you, though.
0: <laughs> you have second thoughts now, but it's not about money, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. I also had a ton of different feelings about that debt. I always knew it was the right choice for us at the time, but I felt so guilty about it. On the other hand, it was incredibly motivating. I had, and probably still do have, a fear of letting you down. I just became really driven to make that investment pay off for us and for our family. Okay, let's change gears and talk a little bit about what we did to tackle our debt and get on the right path financially. Once I finished school and started working, we had to start paying on my student loans. How many loans did I have? Was it 16 or 19? I can never remember.
1: I don't remember either, but 16 sounds right.
0: While I may not remember the number of loans, I do remember that those payments were the real deal. It became obvious that we were gonna need a serious plan to get out of the hole we were in. We both knew that we were gonna have to be on the same page because those payments were gonna have some severe short and long-term implications on our lifestyle and our ability to save money for a house, start a family, and save for our retirement. We definitely didn't phrase it like this at the time, but we started with two buckets. We had our why bucket and we had our how bucket. The why bucket was as simple as it sounds. Why did we want to get out of debt?
1: Exactly right. For us, that meant having some breathing room because we felt a bit suffocated and we eventually wanted to have financial freedom.
0: The why really helped us frame the how. If we were both committed to the why, we knew we could suffer through the how. We could be each other's coach and hold each other accountable. Now, the how is where stuff got real. We knew that in order to get this debt behind us as quickly as possible and therefore make room for our other life goals, We were going to have to commit to a couple practices, which I'm able to name after the fact. It would have really been nice to be able to understand these things while we're going through it. Instead, we just said, this sucks a
1: lot. Yes, we did. Because it did suck.
0: Yeah, it did. Our how of getting out of debt came down to two practices. Deferred gratification and forced scarcity. Deferred gratification is the idea that a person is willing to resist the temptation of an immediate reward in preference for a later reward. For us, that meant living really lean in the early years so that we wouldn't have to do so later in life. It's taking the long view. For scarcity, or artificial scarcity, on the other hand, is the idea that you're basically living on less than you make by automating your savings or debt payments. For us, this meant that we were committed to automatically shielding a significant portion of our income and put that towards our debt payments and retirement savings. We didn't give ourselves a choice each month whether to make the extra debt payments or retirement contributions. We just automated that decision. It took it out of our hands. In other words, we forced ourselves into a scarcity mindset. Diane, what did that mean for us in our day-to-day lives?
1: Well, first it meant that we lived on only one salary. We decided to accelerate your student loan payments, shorten our mortgage to 15 years, and contribute extra towards our retirement accounts. We knew that we could only do those things if we dedicated your salary and bonuses toward those three things. Every time we got something extra, it went toward either the debt, the house, or our retirement.
0: And you had to work really hard and advance your career so we could afford some stuff.
1: That's right, and that was tough, especially after we had our first daughter. Mom guilt is real, and it was tough to stay that focused on my career while being a new mom.
0: It meant we had to make a lot of sacrifices. We saved a lot, we didn't take any nice vacations, and we moved into a cheap apartment so we could save up money for a down payment for our first home. Do you remember that one POS of an apartment that we toured when we were trying to save money on rent?
1: Oh my God, yes. I felt like we were losing at life during that tour.
0: We were losing. I think that was a low point for us. For sure. But it wasn't all bad. Those times also gave us some clarity and a shared purpose. We worked together toward the goal. We were communicating regularly about our progress and we got to celebrate our wins. And it motivated us to work incredibly hard and push ourselves and our careers and to get our debts behind us. Got another trivia question for you. Do you remember the nickname we gave to the student loan account?
1: I sure do. Diablo.
0: Great memory. That's correct. We called that account Diablo. I remember when we went to the bank to close that account after the debt was gone and the banker looked at me with equal parts humor and this guy is crazy. And he was right. We probably were a bit crazy. That intensity is what allowed us to get to the other side of the river as quickly as we did.
1: Looking back now, I think that deciding to accelerate repayments by shortening the terms of our loans was the best decision we've made.
0: I agree but when we consolidated all my student loans into one huge private loan, it was incredibly daunting.
1: That payment was significantly more than our mortgage payment.
0: Yeah, a lot more. But it did allow us to take the term way down and put much more towards principal every month. Same is true with the mortgage. Taking that from a 30-year to a 15-year mortgage really allowed us to build up equity quickly. One other point I think I should explain is why we continued to contribute to our retirement accounts while we were working our way out of debt. We did so for two reasons. First, we knew we weren't gonna be able to get out of debt in two years or less. In some limited instances, it may make sense to pause retirement contributions while you pay off your debt, especially if it's of the high interest variety. Second, we wanted to take advantage of the free money our employers offered through our 401k matches. We started by saving just enough to get our matches and then increase from there. Okay, Diane, thankfully we're in a new phase in our lives and we've moved past those big debts and are now less concerned with watching every single penny. But, as I like to say, we still have scars, don't we?
1: Yes, we certainly do.
0: At the same time I finished school and started working, the economy was getting really bad. We were young, newly married, trying to start our careers, thinking about starting a family, and wondering how we were ever going to be able to dig out of all that debt. People all around us, but particularly me, because I was in banking, were losing their jobs. It was a very scary time. We carry those feelings with us today, and it forms how we approach our personal finances.
1: We do. Because of that, we remain hyper savers and we keep more cash than we probably should. And we remain debt averse. That's how we cope with those financial insecurities.
0: But we have made some changes and we've eased off the accelerator a bit. We switched to a savings goal versus strict budgeting and we're letting the little stuff go. We're giving ourselves permission to go do more things or buy things and try not to feel guilty about it.
1: Yep. And now we're trying to pass along good money habits to our kids. We talk about what we're doing and why. We have them help us color in boxes when we accomplish our goals. We talk with them about what it means to save and invest.
0: And we talk with them about the causes we support and why, what it means to give back.
1: We're also realizing that we have two very different kids. Our older daughter feels the pain of spending money. She clearly hates doing it. Our younger daughter, not so much. When we go to the store, she frequently asks, do I have enough money for this?
0: In other words, I have every intention of buying this thing. Yeah. We're also now in the position that our parents were with us, setting expectations about money and trying to model good financial behaviors. We're hashtag adulting. Diane, thanks so much for joining me. Was this as awful as you thought it was going to be?
1: No, this was actually kind of fun.
0: Willing to do it again?
1: Don't get ahead of yourself.
0: Noted. If you like what you hear, please do us a favor and subscribe and share so we know you're out there. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at fnbsf.com.